Hello and welcome to Hillcrest To Go. I'm your host, John Parker. Today, Dr. Tom Goodman shares a message titled, Accept His Reign Who Accepted Your Ruin. First, our scripture reading, followed by an important message from Dr. Tom Goodman. Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say, that the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display, people stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the haunts of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Therefore, those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. God bless the reading of his word. Next Sunday, we begin a series through the last four chapters 
of the Gospel of John. Those of you who've been with us for a while, you know we've been in the Gospel of John for a while, taking breaks from time to time. But God willing, we'll take the uh, length of the summer every Sunday to go through the last four chapters of the Gospel of John, chapters 18, 19, 20, and 21, uh, present to us what Mel Gibson called the Passion of the Christ. And so my prayer is that as we go through the study of these last four chapters of the Gospel of John, we'll develop passion for the Christ as we look at the passion of the Christ. But you know, a thousand years before John chapters 18, 19, 20, and 21 were written, we have these words today in Psalm 22. It is a remarkably accurate picture of what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John later present to us as the death and resurrection of Jesus. I imagine Simon Peter had Old Testament passages like Psalm 22 in mind when he wrote what he did in 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Isn't that a remarkable passage? What that passage is telling us is that all the prophecies of the Old Testament, including this one, Psalm 22, was nudged, it was inspired by the Spirit of Christ, who in the prophets were the Spirit of Christ was predicting what he would suffer and the glory that would follow his own suffering. In the first half of the psalm that we're looking at today, we read about the sufferings of Christ. In the second half of this psalm, we read about the glories that followed. And so I want you to find a pen or a pencil in your sermon notes, and let's write a couple of things down. First of all, King David predicted to us that a coming king would die for us. King David predicted to us that a coming king would die and sacrifice for us. The first 21 verses present this astonishing and arresting prediction of something that would not come to pass until a thousand years after David wrote these words. What's remarkable is that it was a thousand years before anything like a crucifixion was known by anyone. I mean, in the Old Testament times, uh, God's people and the people surrounding God's people, whenever they had to perform the sad work of execution, it was by stoning somebody to death. In other words, taking these stones and rocks and throwing them at them until they were bludgeoned, until they were dead. It was the Phoenicians sometime later on that developed this thing we now know as crucifixion, and it was the Romans who adopted it from the Phoenicians and developed it in cruel perfection. And they were the ones that used crucifixion on non-Roman citizens who were accused of uh, violating the rules of the state. But that was a thousand years after King David wrote these words. King David didn't know anything about a crucified man, and yet he wrote these words in prophecy because according to uh, Simon Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, the Spirit of Christ was in him to predict, to foretell the sufferings that he himself would go through and the resurrection that would follow after that. You know, it was this very thing that caused uh, uh, one person in particular, many people I'm sure, but one person in particular I know, to 
trust the authority of the Bible. Charles Colson came into the public consciousness uh, during the Watergate scandal of the early 1970s. In fact, he went to prison because of the role he played in that scandal. He became a Christian when he was in prison, but because he came to Christian in middle age, he still had that uh, skepticism that he had always carried with him as a as a university student, as a Marine, as a, uh, as a lawyer himself, he, he still maintained that skepticism about the Bible, even as a Christian. He said in one of his books later on, I began to study the Bible with a lawyer's skepticism. I suspected that it was a compilation of ancient fables that had endured through the centuries because of its wisdom, but his skepticism melted away the more he studied the Bible. And in particular, the more he studied passages like this, Psalm 22, and it's starting, startlingly accurate uh, prediction of the suffering that Jesus would experience a thousand years later on. I want to compare what King David wrote to what the Gospels wrote about Jesus' execution. Of course, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, starting in verse 34, we read about the crucifixion, and we read that Roman soldiers put nails through the hands and the feet of Jesus. And as he was splayed out there on the cross then, he felt all his bones were out of joint. His, the ribs and uh, his rib cage would have been uh, distended out. Well, this is exactly what we read in the 22nd Psalm. In verse 14, verse 17, verse 16. In verse 14, we read, I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. Verse 17, all my bones are on display. And then remarkably, verse 16, they pierce my hands and my feet. And then in Matthew chapter 27, verse 35, we read this, when they had crucified him, they, that is the Roman soldiers, divided up his clothes by casting lots. We also find this in the Gospel of John. We're going to get to this in a few weeks when we get to John chapter 19, verses 23 and 24. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. What scripture was he referring to there? The Gospel of John. He was referring to Psalm 22, verse 18. They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Then back in the Gospel of Matthew again, we read in verses 38 through 44 of Matthew chapter 27, we read this. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. God, let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Well, this is a fulfillment of what we read in verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 22, which says, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. 
Then we find in Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 and 46, these words, from noon to about three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, and he was saying this in Aramaic, the language he would have used, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, isn't that exactly what this man in Psalm 22 cried out in verse 1? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Back to Matthew chapter 27 again, this time verse 48, which tells us that Jesus was thirsty. And so they got a sponge and they lifted up this dirty sponge soaked in uh, water and wine vinegar and gave it to Jesus. And Jesus drank it and said, that he was done, it was finished, and he gave up his spirit. Well, we read in, in uh, Psalm 22, verse 15, uh, just about that very thing. He says in Psalm 22, I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. Uh, he, he says in, um, uh, let me find the verse again, verse 15, uh, he says that my mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. A potsherd was a broken piece of pottery. Sometimes that pottery would break simply because pottery is fragile, but sometimes that pottery would break because it got too dried out. All of the moisture that was in it had gotten baked out of it, and it was fragile. And this is what this man in Psalm 22 that David heard was saying. Well, this is exactly what King Jesus was saying from the cross as well in the four Gospels. Don't you see now why so many of the theologians have referred to Psalm 22 as the fifth Gospel? You know, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've got the four Gospels of the New Testament. When we have this fifth Gospel in the Old Testament. The remarkable thing, though, was that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were reporting history that had already happened. In Psalm 22, King David was reporting prophecy that was yet to take place. This is why we can depend on the reliability of the Bible in such a remarkable way. Now, how could King David be so accurate how could he have been so uncannily accurate? Yogi Berra famously said, you know, it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. Now, the reality is it is hard to make predictions. You know, the best we can do as human beings is take educated guesses about what might happen. Not one of us can uh, declare with certainty what absolutely will happen. And so sometimes when we make our predictions, we are on point. And other times we make our predictions and we're wide of the mark. A couple of examples from science fiction writers is interesting. In 1933, the science fiction writer H.G. Wells predicted that the Great Depression would last until 1955. And he also said that men would reach the moon by the year 2045. He was wide of the mark. On the other hand, there was a man named Jules Verne who wrote a book called Trip to the Moon. It was written in 1870, and yet he predicted that men would eventually reach the moon, three of them in a capsule, launching from Florida and splashing down in the ocean. Now, there's so much accuracy there, it is eerie, isn't it? Now, what about King David? Was it just this uncanny fluke that he was able to come up with all these accurate portrayals of a crucifixion long before a crucifixion had ever been invented by anyone as a means of execution? Well, not if you really take what Simon Peter said at face value. Simon Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 10 and 11, as I've already said, he said that the Spirit of Christ was in those writers of the Old Testament. 
announcing ahead of time the suffering that he would go through and the glory that would follow. So in Psalm 22, King David predicted to us that a coming king would die in sacrifice for us. But King David didn't just predict that this coming king would die for us. He also predicted that this coming king would, after his death for us, would reign in victory over us. So that's the second thing I want you to write down in your notes. King David predicted to us that a coming king would reign in victory over us. If the first half of this psalm predicts the sufferings of the Messiah, the second half of this psalm predicts the glories that would follow, exactly the way Simon Peter said it would be in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. In the first half, we have complaint. In the second half, we have rejoicing. In the first half, verses 1 through 21, we hear verses like this. David hears the suffering one say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, my God, I cry out, but you do not answer. But then in verses 22 through 31, the second half of the psalm, King David says, He has not despised, has not disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has listened to his cry for help. But now the remarkable thing is that this deliverance that we read about in verses 22 through 31, it doesn't just benefit the sufferer. When you read through these verses in the second half of Psalm 22, this man that David heard off in the future was declaring that because his God would rescue him, his God would deliver him, that the entire world would praise God, that the entire world would hear about God. You know, there was a preacher at the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, named Alexander McLaren. There's still a lot of Bible teachers and preachers that continue to look at the things he's written uh, because he was so good at interpreting the Bible, but then turning it into something that would be really useful as Bible study. And McLaren in Psalm 22 says that, Uh, The second half of the psalm is written in, quote, language so wide that it is hard to suppose any ordinary man could think his personal experience so important and so far-reaching. And it's true. I mean, listen to these statements that uh, conclude this psalm. Now, here's a man, King David hears, who has had his hands and his feet pierced. His tongue is stuck to the roof of his mouth. He is a man in suffering and in abandonment. But in the second half of the psalm, we read, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. Why? Because this man has been rescued. And because of this man has been rescued, we read in verses 30 and 31, posterity will serve God. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Now, do you talk like that when God has answered your prayer request? I mean, you've been waiting and waiting for a job, and finally a job comes through, and you say, you know, people down through the generations are going to talk about this. <laughs> or, or you don't know where your, your uh, rent is going to come from, and all of a sudden, unexpectedly, you get a windfall of $800. Do you say, you know what, all the earth is going to praise God because of what God just did for me? We, we, don't, we don't talk like that, do we? We're certainly grateful that God has answered our prayer and God has come through for us and we celebrate and maybe our entire Sunday school class rejoices with us, but that's about as far as it goes. We don't expect the entire earth to celebrate over that. We don't ex- expect generation after generation down, down the line to celebrate what God has done for us. But the man that David heard and wrote about in Psalm 22 said, because God has delivered me, 
The entire world is going to turn to him. The entire earth is going to lift up his name and praise. Now that would be arrogance if it wasn't accurate. And it's not arrogance because it is accurate. Jesus was declaring these words. David heard them. and David recorded them. Because 1 Peter chapter 1 is right. That in the Old Testament, the writers were inspired by the Spirit of Christ who through their writing would declare what he was going to suffer and the glories that would follow. And see, here's the beautiful thing about Psalm 22. I mean, it is a remarkable psalm. It's a beautiful psalm. It's a remarkable psalm. But here's the thing. The whole point of Psalm 22 is to take you from verse 1 to verse 30, verse by verse by verse by verse, marching toward an inexorable truth that the one who accepted your ruin now expects you to accept his reign. That's the truth that we find in Psalm 22. The one who accepted your ruin now expects you to accept his reign. Do you understand that Jesus accepted your ruin? He took on himself your sin, your stain, your rebellion, your rejection of God. He took that on himself. There's a song we sing from time to time. It was written in 1995, but it sounds like a really old hymn. It was written by Stuart Townsend, but it begins with this line, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. What a thought, that Jesus was not only rejected, by the Jewish leadership who should have embraced him as their Messiah. Jesus was not only rejected by the Roman authorities who were famous for having a, a, a justice to uphold. Jesus was not only abandoned by his own followers out of their fear and their fright, but Jesus was abandoned, at least at the time on the cross, by his own father. The father turned his face away, is how we sing it. Or... As King David heard another king in the future say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, how could it possibly be that this is the way it was? Well, we have to understand that God is utterly holy and God is utterly loving at the same time. He is completely holy. And so he looks upon our sin and he does not shrug his shoulders. He does not say, well, your heart was in the right place. He doesn't give us a grandfatherly pat on the head and said, go out and try harder next time. He is, he is aghast at our sin and our rebellion. And yet at the same time, he deeply loves us. He created us so that we might delight him. He created us so that we might be with him forever uh, in this earth and also in heaven. That's God's design, God's purpose. And so there is, if I can say it, in a, in, a, in a holy way, a sacred way, there was a dilemma. It wasn't a dilemma on God's side, but it feels like that on our side. God looks upon our sin. It must be taken care of. It must be dealt with. And yet at the same time, he loves us and doesn't want us to bear it himself. And so in the mystery of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit brought forth into history a plan that would show God is utterly holy and utterly love at the same time. The Son, God the Son, would bear upon His own shoulders our sin and our ruin. And God the Father in His heartbreak, His holiness but His heartbreak, would turn away from the Son who was bearing that on the cross, bearing it into death for you and for me. 
It's the only way that we can understand Psalm 22. It's the only way we can truly sing out with our heart, the Father turns His face away, His wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. And the one then who accepted our ruin on His shoulders on the cross is now challenging us, calling on us to accept His glorious resurrection reign over each one of our hearts. For some of you, you need to take that step for the very first time today and say, Jesus, come into my life and be my Savior and Lord. Thank you for bearing my sin on your shoulders to death on the cross. How you must love me. Some of us need to say that today. But there are many of us in here who've said something like that before. We have become believers. But the reality is that slowly, slowly, we've carried back into our own possession, into our own control, things that we thought we had first turned over to God when we committed our life to Him. And so we say, God, I, I, I'll give you my Sunday, but the way I conduct my job is up to me. God, I give you uh, the, the decisions I make over my family, but my private time, my recreation is up to me. God, I'm going to turn this matter over to you, but I'm going to keep my decisions about my money. That's up to me. And if we really understood Psalm 22 and what it's trying to take us to, we would understand that His reign is something that we must accept over all of our life because He gave all of His life for us. And so what I would challenge you today, if you're a believer, is to review your life, look over your life. Are there still areas of rebellion? Are there still areas where you've said, well, I've, I've gone about as far as I can go in living this holy life. You know, God, I, I won't go any further as long as you're happy with what I've done. We need to ask forgiveness for that. We need to repent of that. And we need to ask the one who accepted our ruin to be glad to see us accept all of his reign over all of our life. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to come into our life for the first time or ask him to come in and let us renew our commitment to his reign and to his control. Father, how deep your love must be for us that you would give your only son to make wretched me your treasure that you in heartbreak would turn your face away from the son who carried my sin on the cross because Jesus accepted my ruin I will accept his reign I place my faith in you I ask you to save me and I turn over every part of my life to your authority my choices my attitudes my money my plans why would I hesitate to accept your authority over my life when I think about how you took away my sin and saved me? I belong to you. Make me the person that you want me to be. Lord, we pray this in the name of the one who saved us, the name of the one who inspired Psalm 22, and the one who lived out the agony and the resurrection glory of Psalm 22. We pray this in Jesus' name. This concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time as Dr. Goodman shares a sermon titled Amazed and Astonished. I'm your host, John Parker, and this has been Hillcrest To Go. For more information, please contact us at hillcrest.church.